today we are going to be blessed. I've been blessed. I'm Millie and I, we got to know some folks in this crazy group called Tikkun many years ago, even before we moved to Israel and when we were living in Israel. They have been such a blessing to us, such an encouragement to us. They are our covering Tikkun. Um, there's Tikkun Global, which is in Jerusalem, because we believe that the law will go forth from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. But we're also part of a thriving ministry here in the United States, Tikkun America. And we're blessed to have Ben Juster with us. Ben, come on up here. Ben, uh, I've known for several years. I've known his dad for even longer. And his dad is, um, what's his name again? Oh, that's right. Bob. Dan, Bob, Jack. Dan is going to be here actually in a couple of months. But um, we've gotten to know Ben and when he was living in Israel, he was there for oh, five years. Yeah. And, um, but he is one of our sheliach, one of our apostolic leaders. He's actually the president of Tikkun America. And he's our one of, he's my boss, kind of, you know. He's like one of my bosses. I'm submitted to, to, this, to this guy. But, but I love being part of this ministry. Um, when we started the congregation, we felt like we needed a Messianic Jewish covering. And there was no other organization that we saw that was at the level of tikkun. And so we're blessed. Um, Ben's got a, a word for us. Dr. Ben, I should say. Not, Dr. Masters. Not yet. Masters. Masters, okay, he's working. He'll get his doctorate. It's just a prophetic word. So, um, but would you, <laughs> would you reach out your hands to, to Ben as we pray? Father, we bless you and we thank you for... Just bringing him here for this first visit to our congregation. Yes. And uh, Lord, just to anoint the words that he speaks, Lord, that we would be encouraged. Lord, we would have greater eyes to see your kingdom purposes today, Lord, in everything. Because you are moving big time. So Lord, bless him in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Wonderful Shabbat Shalom to you all. Such a great thing to be with you for the first time in this community. Started about five and a half years ago, right? So just before I moved to Israel, the congregation Or Chaim started. It's pretty neat. Um, I got some time yesterday with Stu and Millie. Just wonderful time talking about vision, talking about the community. Boy, are they passionate for the Lord. I don't want you to think that when you get to be more seasoned in life that you have to lose your fire. <laughs> we like salt with our food. We like seasoning. Um, but I just so appreciate them and also the, the quality of the worship and the testimonies of what God is doing here. You can really see and feel that the Lord is here. And that's very special. Um, as Stu said, I am the president of Tikkun America, but we are not big in titles. Sure, God gives roles and responsibilities and passion for things, gifting, but we are about serving one another because all of us have a real place and a role together. And even authority is not about lording it over each other. Uh, the best relationships are one where you walk in mutual submission and accountability to the king. And so one of the things that does make Tikkun a little different 
is that we believe in team ministry, fivefold ministry walking together where you have all different kinds of leaders and gifts who hold each other accountable and to make sure that we're not um, taking the responsibility that has been given and entrusted to the elders away from the community and putting it in the hands of some organization. That's not what we're about. We're about seeing leaders raised up. We're about empowering and seeing multiplication. We have actually about 30 congregations in Tikkun America that are spread across the United States. We have one in Canada and one even in Mexico. So we're open to what the Lord would do. We're not growing for growth's sake. We're growing with people who want to, to connect to the values of who we are. What are some of those values? Well, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. So even though we have a Jewish cultural worship expression, and even though we sing the liturgy and do that, we want the Lord's presence to be here. And there's a reality that all of you, you know, the testimonies are experiencing as he is faithful, right? And then we believe in the centrality of Yeshua, the divine son of God, So he's not just an asterisk that we put, tag Yeshua, you know, we said it. But he's central. We worship him. He is the king above all kings. And he's the one that we're looking forward to. Number three, this idea of covenant relationships. And it's not a cultic thing. You join Tikkun, you can never leave. You know, it's not one of those things. But I've seen, now I'm a second generation Messianic Jewish believer. I've seen my father model this with other people where he's walked for 40, 45 years with relationships of love and faithfulness. He's been faithful to my mother, which is wonderful, but he's also been faithful to the ministry, faithful to the Lord and faithful to his friends. And again, they, it's not always been easy. There are some times when there are disagreements and you have to walk through those just like you do in a family with parents and children and husbands and wives. But yet we're committed to seeing God's destiny worked out together because he called us together. So that's another really important thing. Another thing that's very, very much apparent is that the heart for Israel. Not every messianic organization has such a passion and alignment with what God is doing in the land of Israel to raise up a messianic remnant there, to support them financially, to pray for Israel and to stand together with them. And this is where our DNA is. You know, Asher Intrader and Eitan Shishkoff, many of you know these names. They are there in the land serving. Many congregations have been multiplied, even within Tikkun Israel. That's the family of Israel congregations. There's 10 of them. So you can see that the Lord is good and faithful and he's growing up. A last thing that you might not know, and I don't want anyone to be offended here. I hope you're not offended when I say this. But we love the church. Okay, it's important that we don't set ourselves up with another wall of partition and say, ah, we we messianics, we we have everything together. Uh, All of our messy antics, as we say. No, but... um. It's not the ideal form. It's a form. We believe that God is about restoration. And he's bringing to every body, every stream that's hungry for him and hungry for truth, he is revealing things in these days. And we want to walk together in unity and love as one new humanity in the family of God. And we cannot do that if we say, well, you'd be better if you just did this, if you just wore a talit on Saturday, 
Or if you just sang the Shema in Hebrew like we can. No, we don't want to build up a wall of partition. These are things that God has entrusted to us, and we walk them out with the blessing and favor of the Lord, but we also bless the body outside. Amen? So I wanted to give you a little intro because you don't know me, and I want you to know a little of my story before I give you just a brief word of encouragement and a look at my watcher. You know what it means? You, you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. See, you've heard this joke before. It's, it's us preachers. We know the time. You know, you look at your watch just so that everybody thinks that you care about the time. No, I really do care about the time. But um, a little background. I grew up in a season that you mentioned today. Uh, or actually, maybe it was in your message last week. I listened to Stu's message last week, and it's full of faith, encouragement about the days that we're living in. But in the early Messianic Jewish world, before there was a modern Messianic Judaism, people were coming to faith in the hundreds and thousands because of there was a hunger. And I'm not talking about just Messianic Judaism. I'm talking about there was a wave in the Jesus movement where people were making professions of faith. And you could almost go up to someone. They'd come up and ask you what your name was. You'd tell them your name. And then they'd say, what do I need to do to be saved? These were the kinds of days. There was a hunger and passion that people had grown tired of the free love drug culture and were looking for a Messiah. So I grew up as a little kid in that. I was born in 1975 and grew up in this environment. When my dad had come out of the Presbyterian church and started to lead a Messianic Jewish congregation. And so I remember earliest days trying to figure this thing out. How do we live faithful to Yeshua, yet in the same time, how do we live as a Jew, that we're reclaiming our heritage, reclaiming our identity. And so this is the time. It was very exciting, but also very rocky. In, the, in one sense, the Messianic Jewish world is caught between the wider body of believers and the Jewish world, and we're kind of strange in the middle of both. There's tension. And so I grew up with that. I also grew up as the son of a pretty prominent leader, he became the president of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, the first founding president for eight years he served in that role. He was also the senior pastor of one of the largest Messianic Jewish congregations called Beth Messiah Congregation in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was growing and growing. And so as a kid, young kid growing up, I was in a fishbowl, and people would always be watching me to see how I would turn out and what I would do. It's very interesting. I'll continue on in that little bit of the story in a minute. But um, schooling was amazing because my mother co-founded a Messianic Jewish day school. And I wish, oh, there's Lee in the back there. I'm, I'm glad he's still here because I wanted to just honor you, Lee, for those years when you served as principal and the inspiration you brought to so many of the kids. And I was one of them. You know, they did have, this was a cultural shift they used to spank children in school, and, and ours wasn't any different at that time. You, if you were uh, rambunctious and didn't listen to the teacher enough times, you would go to the principal's office, and then they had a little spoon, the rod of correction, and they would give, you a, give a couple swats. We don't do that anymore. Culture has shifted. I don't think any school is allowed to spank kids anymore. It's probably a good thing. But um, I, Lee never did have to spank me. I do remember Eitan Shishkov had to spank me one time, though, and that was memorable. It was the only one time I had to go to the principal's office for that. 
But uh, yeah, so I grew up in a Messianic Jewish day school. This was a new thing. Of course, they had many people from the church world who was just bonding with this form of education, this rootedness in the Holy Scriptures from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And then, um, and then I went to, of all things, an interdenominational high school that Asher Intrader was the principal for for many years. And then that school closed, and I went to a Baptist high school. And where do you go from a Baptist high school? You go to a hyper-charismatic college. I went to Oral Roberts University, where I got my undergraduate degree, not in um, seminary studies, but, but in business. And I just felt, you know, my, my dad, he never put pressure on me to enter the ministry. I never, never said, Ben, I want you to fill my shoes. You're going to do this and you're going to be the... Nope, he never pushed me forward in that way. It's important for you to know, too, because even when I came into this role as the president, it was because of calling, not because of he put me forward. It's because of, well, I'll tell you the story. But um, at that time, Oral Roberts University. And then finally, after graduating, I got a master's degree from a very good Messianic Jewish educational institution called the Messianic Jewish Theological Institute. And so that's where I got my master's of rabbinic studies. So well-rounded. But, you know, it's given me a great perspective on the body. Great experiences in each of those places. Very strange experiences in those places as well. Good and bad. And I don't think that I've, you know, perfectly aware of everything. I'm not saying that now I'm the, really the master of understanding church history and church uh, dynamics. But I do have a lot. I've been around the block a few times. And, uh, but I went into the business world after college. And for 12 years, I served in various capacities in uh, management, business management. So I was working for a nonprofit school at one point, and then I went to work for a NASA contractor, which was very exciting. I had a division director who was a former astronaut, and the president of the company was an Apollo program engineer, so that just gives you the context of how exciting that was. I remember going to Houston and sitting in the mission control and watching them uh, take off and have a, have a mission to go up to the International Space Station. Really, really exciting time. And then after that, I moved to Florida and was working for Toyota, one of the largest Toyota distributorships in the United States. And it was incredible. I mean, I'd hop on these private Gulfstream jets and fly to this meeting and then fly back the same day. It was like a really heady kind of interesting experience. But all of that was being used for God to prepare me for what he had for today. Also, I have to mention that I had a miraculous, divine confirmation for my wife. So the Lord has spoken to me. And um, it was interesting because I was coming back from Oral Roberts on a break. And I had brought a girlfriend with me to meet the family. You know, it's dangerous. Guess who, you know, the, the college and career leader at that time was a guy by the name of Ron Cantor. Anyone heard this name? Ron Cantor. He was my college and career group leader. But we're in his townhouse and we're having worship together. And all of a sudden, in the middle of worship, I hear this strong voice inside my spirit. It wasn't audible, but it was a very strong voice. And it said, Ben, turn around. That's your wife. So I said, my girlfriend's across the room. I turned around, and there's this woman I'd never seen before, Hispanic. 
And I said, that can't be God. I hate that culture. You know, because I was at Oral Roberts University, and everybody thinks that they're supposed to be marrying everybody else, and they go and tell the woman, and the woman feels pressure, and I'm not going to be that guy. So I held it in my heart. Now, not that God can't speak. I had to learn that the way that you do this is if God puts something on your heart, you do what Jacob did when his son came and told him that he had a uh, dream. He held it in his heart. He waited to see what would happen. And so that's what I did. And after graduating from college and this relationship didn't work out, we're still friends. It's not like there's anything um, uh, between what happened. But, but I developed a, a new relationship with this Guatemalan Jewish background woman. Her name's Lorena. And um, I wanted to do it right. So I went and told my family. I said, could you pray about Lorena and see if you'd get a confirmation? Because I really feel like I've heard from the Lord that this is supposed to be my wife. And they said, well, we will pray, but we want you to wait because you're going on a missions trip to Ethiopia and we don't want you to be distracted. So we're going to pray while you're over there. And once we've heard from the Lord, then we will let you know. So I said, fine, I'm willing to do this. You know, it's a couple weeks, three weeks, I'll be back and then we can figure this out. The missions trip started out amazing. The people of Ethiopia were, they broke my heart, just their love and generosity. By the way, if you've been to poor places in the world, one other thing that will undo you or completely unravel your perception is how generous they are. And it puts us to shame because we have so much and we try to keep it and we give just a little but they'll give everything that they have. I mean, they're just hoping that, hey, I don't have anything anyway. What's, what's nothing plus nothing? Here, take what I have. And, and there's just a, a different communal culture that comes out of poverty. Now, I'm not saying every poverty culture is like that, but, but Ethiopia, it, was, it, it wrenched my heart. It was just so eye-opening. But while I'm in the middle of this trip, we're going to orphanages and churches and praying and street witnessing and other things. I get a call in the middle of the night that my brother who at that time was 12 years old, was in a fire. Now, um, I'm thousands of miles away. The call is in the middle of the night and probably morning their time. And, um, and the team just starts praying. I mean, we're devastated. We, we are just laying out everything that we can to pray before the Lord, to lay it out and pray for healing. And after two days, my brother was on life support. He was not responding his heart was still beating, but kept on by machines. And at the end of two days of prayer, we got another call and saying, as much prayer and fasting as we did, we're so sorry, Ben, but your brother, they're pulling off the machine and um, he's not going to make it. And so I remember just being devastated. Um, so much so because if I had faith, see Samuel, which is his name, was a miraculous child himself. My, my parents had his name given to them prophetically about what to call him. And even at one year old, he had myocarditis and, the, and he was hooked up to all these machines and the doctor said that even if he lived, he would be a vegetable and never play baseball. So when, miraculously, Mike Brown was there, but thousands of people, you know, were praying for him to recover. And guess what? He was miraculously healed. And his heart, this is so amazing, his heart went from three times its normal size down to normal size, and there was no scarring. 
And the doctor had said, just kind of as a, a way to emphasize the point that even if he grows up, he'll never play baseball. My dad is a big baseball fan. And sure enough, he started playing on little league teams and was athletic, very, very energetic little boy, Samuel was. Maybe even a little more energetic than I was. And I was pretty energetic, <laughs> at least shaking his head. And um, so we were devastated. We didn't understand. We didn't understand what was going on. And I remember sitting on the edge of a bed. And it was like I was on the edge of a cliff. And I, I really felt my mind going insane. I felt myself losing it. That it was one of those unrecoverable moments that if I had walked in this path, I would not be the same person that I am today. And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and God gives me this moment of clarity where I'm able to see myself on the edge of this cliff about to jump off mentally. And the Lord arrests my spirit, and he says, Ben, I know the pain is so great. I know the pain is so great. And if you did this, meaning if you chose to jump off the cliff and throw in the towel and give it all up, I would understand. Not that he would agree, but that he would understand. But, the Spirit told me, if you will trust me, I will walk through this pain with you, and I will not leave you. I will be there for you to comfort you. And it was at that moment that I'm sitting on the bed. My sister saw this. I don't know what she saw in my eyes because of there was this transaction happening, and I think that she saw that I was about to make a decision to just throw in the towel. And she was thinking that she was not going to lose just one brother that week, but two. One to the fire and one to mental anguish. And so she looks at me and she says in a blood-curdling scream, Ben, no! That was loud, right? But this is how she was, she was desperate. She was desperate. And it was at that moment that I was choosing, God, as hard as this is, I choose to follow you. I choose to let you walk with me, to give me hope again. And, you know, look, we, we prayed for resurrection for him. We, I don't think that any of you have attended a resurrection service before, but they pro promoted this. Thousands of people showing up to the church as a resurrection service where they put his coffin right in the front and they had leaders come up and blow the shofar and lay hands on the coffin telling him to come and arise. Is that faith? But he didn't rise. They did it again, two times. Arise. And he didn't come forth. And they buried him and put him in the grave. But you know what? I watched my family during this time and they didn't lose their faith. It was hard. <laughs> you know, don't let any parent who's lost a loved one before their time just say that they just are walking in faith and trusting it to the Lord and they don't have any emotion because it was hard. I remember them. But you know what they did? They, they put on worship music every day. Hours. Just changing the atmosphere. They couldn't actually listen to or watch anything else because of Everything else, TV shows, anything that would try to deaden the pain was like vomitous to them. They just wanted the Lord. They just wanted his presence. 
And so after, I'm in Ethiopia, 2,000 miles away. I didn't attend these services. My, my sister and I would have taken two days just to get home. And so we were like, well, we only have a week left to be here. We're gonna, I guess we just have to finish out the trip because of all the coordination and logistics of trying to get us back. And so we stayed while my parents, both in faith, proclaimed you know, that action, but then also grieved. And so on the way home, I'm asking them, I said, Mom and Dad, this has been the most difficult life, uh, um, week of our whole lives. Most difficult week. Did you have a chance to pray about Lorena and I? Think about the chutzpah of a kid, 23 years old, asking their parents in the same week that they lost their son, 12 years old, did you have a chance to pray about my joy, my relationship? And in one sense, it's crazy. And, and you know, you think, how, how, who, how could you do that as a son? But I was, I was grasping for something. I wanted to hear God's voice. I wanted something to confirm that he still had me and was moving me forward. And so my parents, shock of all shocks, said, Ben, we actually had a moment of clarity where the Lord led us to pray about you and Lorena. And we're not going to tell you anything until you get home. <laughs> so I had 25, 30 hours of travel before I got home of, you know, bus rides and planes and trains and other things. So finally got home and the next day they said, Ben, that was the most amazing thing. This doesn't happen all the time to your mom and I, but we are both praying separately, and the Lord gave us the same word for you and Lorena. And they said, the Lord said, but in our spirit, that Lorena was supposed to be an Abigail. And we didn't know what context, we didn't know what meaning this had. We knew that Abigail was one of the queens for David, became one of his queens. So we opened up the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25, and in the very first verse of 1 Samuel chapter 25, you know what it says? In the year that Samuel died. And my brother's name is Samuel. And this is the context where Abigail comes, and you know the story, she provides 200 cakes of bread, raisin cakes, and dates and fruits and nuts for this company, his whole company. Now, what was humorous to us was just a few months before I had traveled to Ethiopia, my sister Simka had her bat mitzvah, and we had a big party, lots of guests. And Lorena, out of the goodness of her heart, Guatemalan, she made 200 Guatemalan tacos to feed everybody there. My middle name is David. There's other things in this chapter that it would blow your mind just how many coincidences, God incidences, were written into there that applied to our story, not for any other reason that God wanted to confirm, I've got you. I've got you. Don't worry. I'll be with you. And look, intercultural marriages are not easy. 
But that faith that we had that we would be able to get through anything because God called us together is what set the course of my life through good things, through things where I might doubt. But I was hopeful that God had my good in mind. And so this led me on my journey. Let's see if I can turn on my iPad again here. I can't tell this story without crying. But God has moved in faithfulness every stage of my journey. Not that it has been easy, but in moving our family to Israel five years ago, five, six years ago now, because I've been almost in the United States for one year, and I'll get to that in a second, but that it was miraculous how we got our citizenship. Just like the doors opened for us. We had grace and favor in an Israeli culture where people were being helpful as clerks. Saying, hey, can I walk to the post office with you to pay your tax that you need to pay so you can get this thing done? And that doesn't happen that often. And then things would happen with our apartment and, and other things. It just was like God was making that way. Parting the Red Sea for us to get to the promised land. And then even while I was there, you know, it wasn't easy. People asked me, how was Israel? In one sense, I was pinching myself every day. I'm in the city of the great king. Just outside Jerusalem, I'd walk out and see the Jerusalem hills peppered with trees that had been planted. Hiking trails going up to Jerusalem, just like we'd said the song of ascents in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. I could pray that and look at them. But yet it was a hard, hard season as well. And I tell people it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. But God was there. He was there. And the relationships are strong and they're still strong today. And people ask me, how in the world could you take all of that? You achieved so much by by living there and you learned a lot of Hebrew and you were making it. How did you ever choose to come back to America? And the simple truth is, God's never given me a five-year plan. He just hasn't. Instead, he says, I want you to walk with me. And when I walk with him, there are doors that open. And I will sense a feeling in my spirit that this is the direction that he's walking and that I just need to walk with him and then he will make the way for it. So this idea of being president of Tikkun America was not in my mind five years ago wasn't in my mind. But as I started to serve and have a heart for the congregations and started to see the need in America, that God's not done with America yet, that there's still a work that we have to do among the Jewish people, that I knew that I was being called back. So I shared with the American apostolic team. I said, look, this is just what I'm sensing. I put it before you. Again, my dad did not push this as an idea that I would come back and lead TQ in America. Now he's 74 this year. And so he's looking to, you know, step back. He's still traveling. He'll be here in a few weeks and still preaching, still very, very much engaged and active. But the primary leadership and vision for where we're going for this next season, he knew, could not be his. And he wasn't willing to push forward his son. So he said, guys, I just have to step back from this conversation. You pray and you seek the Lord for what he's calling us to do. And they all prayed, 
and unanimously to a person, they said, Ben is called to do this in this hour. And that helped me, again, with the confirmation. See, this is what I love about prophecy. It's not always ahead of time that you hear the prophetic word for what you're supposed to do. But the Lord will sometimes, and I'm hoping most of the time, my sheep hear my voice, right? He'll put ideas and things into your spirit. And when you are sensitive to the spirit of God, then you sometimes need a confirmation by those that you trust around you. So you ask them to pray. You ask them to stand with you. And I believe that God speaks in those moments very clearly. Not in the way of Gideon, necessarily, where you're putting out a fleece and then saying, I doubt that, put out another fleece, I doubt that. But I'm talking about just a general way of heart intent. If your heart is to do the will of the Lord, and you put it before men and leaders that you trust, women that you trust, friends that you trust, and they pray with you, a lot of times you'll get tremendous confirmation. So I just encourage you in that way. So we moved to Jacksonville last August. It's a great time to move to Florida, right? In the heat of the summer. Um, but we love it. We have experienced the favor of God in such a sweet way of developing new relationships and relationships with an incredible megachurch that's down that way that Paul Wilbur goes to. But our family has been embraced there, and we've started to build relationships. And we also planted, co-planted a Messianic Jewish congregation. They're called Alim. And we have four elders, and we're growing, and it's very exciting what God is doing there. But, but we just know that that's supposed to be the hub from where we start to travel around and minister to the other tikkun congregations. So this brings us, you know, my three kids. I have a 20-year-old daughter. She's in college right now. An 18-year-old son who's just finishing up his senior year of high school. And then a 13-year-old. will be 14, actually, next month in July. An- another son, Andrew. And, um, and pray for us. You know, I, I'm telling you this story because I want you to have a heart connection. I could come and just share a message, and I do have a little bit of one that I want to just encourage you with. But, um, but primarily, I want you to feel like, oh, I know this guy. He's told his story a little bit. I, I know that he's had some tragedies and some victories, and he's overcome some things. Because really, don't you trust people who have overcome a little bit more? If you know someone who has walked through tremendous pain and yet comes out on the other side of that with hope in the Lord and not losing their faith, then you're like, that person can be really trusted when I have some pain. That person can really understand what I'm going through and lead me back to that place just like I had to come to where the Lord, I will walk with you. I think that ministered to many of you today because if many of you have had tremendous tragedies happen in your life abandonments, maybe abusive authorities, other things that have knocked you down. And the Lord wants you to know today that he's not going to leave you. There's nothing that we can do that will separate us from the love of God. And so we need to be encouraged with that. Amen. So I just want to spend a few minutes reflecting a little bit more deeply on the Torah portion and applying it today. And just recognizing, Stu, what an amazing um, drosh you gave. It was so, so good. And I was hoping that we wouldn't overlap too much because I wanted this to be fresh. And I'm glad to say that it's a little different. Not a lot different, but a little, little different. You see, the Hebrews had been released from Egypt in slavery. And it didn't take too long 
comparatively, to walk from Egypt to Sinai and receive the Torah. That was only a month, right? And then to walk the rest of the way to Israel. It wasn't that long of a journey. But the problem is that that slave culture, that mentality to live as a slave, oppressed, is still part of the people at that time. So even though you have princes, these princes were like slaves too. You know, we, had, we can't miss the fact that even though they were leaders within their communities, they weren't, they weren't in positions of favor. They weren't sitting in Pharaoh's court at the dining room table and helping to lead these, this other people of Israel. No, they were being whipped. They were being uh, chastised. They were being oppressed along with all of their families. But yet, along the way, you have to have leaders because someone has to take the responsibility to do things. And so they, they stepped into a place where they were willing to go and explore the land. And they got there, and you know what their, their experience was? Here's another Egypt. Here's another Egypt. They've got giants in the land. Yeah, they have fruitfulness. They have bounty. But yet we're going to go back into this place and we are going to get ourselves in the same situation that we were in before. And so they were scared. They were scared. It says even in Numbers 14, verse 3, why is God bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. And wouldn't it be better if we just returned to Egypt Really? You want to return to the place where you were a slave, where you were in bondage, where you had all this pain and oppression? Well, yes, because that's the pain that we knew. That's the pain that we were comfortable with. I can think of a whole lot of things that could happen going into this new land that we don't know. At least our wives weren't being raped in Egypt. We don't have any guarantee that's not going to happen here. We don't have any guarantee that the giants won't just slaughter us. At least Egypt kept us alive. They fed us because we were building these great monuments to their glory. So they wanted the pain that they knew, not the pain that they didn't or imagined that they knew. But even so, God had to bring a moment of decision where they were punished for this lack of faith, this lack of hope in what he was calling them to do. And so they had to wander 40 years in the desert, one year for every day that the spies were in the land. I think that's a multiplication of punishment, isn't it? 40 years for 40 days. That's not a very encouraging message, but that whole generation had to die out. Egypt had to be purged. The slavery mentality had to be purged from the people so that they could be reformed with the faithfulness of God message, knowing that daily their shoes weren't wearing out, their clothing was being um, miraculously preserved, food was coming from the heavens, water from the rock. Daily, they had to rely on the Lord's provision, and they saw it time and time and time again. Funny enough, it didn't mean that they weren't grumbling didn't mean that they still didn't miss the right attitude of thankfulness and, oh, man, this manna really is ugh, so dry. I've just been eating it for so many years. Can't you just send us some meat? And, you know, this whole idea. 
but you try it. You know, like, do we complain about the smallest inconveniences of our life? And we think, oh, if I was in Egypt and seeing all this, you know, the cloud and the pillar of fire and all this stuff, then I'd be able to do it, right? No. I think that we would be right along with them, asking for mercy. But we have to first address fear. Because fear is at the root of why we instinctively do what we do. It's not necessarily a mental thing all the time. Sometimes it's a reaction. Did you know that you are only born with two fears? Science has done studies and they've proven this. You know what the two fears that you're born with are? Fear of falling. This is proven. You take a little baby and they're very secure next to the chest of the one holding them. But if you hold them out, where's that come from? That's not learned. They're in this completely safe environment inside the womb, and then they come out, and then they all of a sudden have this innate fear of falling. Even if you pretend to drop a baby. I've never done this, by the way. Pretend to drop a baby. Who would do such a thing? But, um, but until the baby learns that they can trust the parent, they are a little scared of being tossed up in the air. It's innate. The other one is sound. So you have a fear. Microphone. I didn't hit it that hard. Come on. Um, We have an innate fear of loud sounds from a very, very young age. As soon as you come out of the womb, and if someone claps or yells or does something like that, it causes the infant to start to cry. But here's what I want us to get the point. Every other fear that you have has either been learned from your experience or taught by someone else telling you their experience or what they think about the world. Let that sink in for just a moment. Every fear that you have, whatever it is, was either learned by your experience. Let's think of Johnny. Johnny's going up to the hot stove. It's a nice glowing light up there. It looks pretty. I want to touch it. So Johnny, the four-year-old, reaches his hand and touches that hot stove. Ow! The pain sears up his arm, right? Why? Well, that's a good teacher. Not We don't want to have pain, but that boy will now be afraid of the glowing light. A healthy fear. I have a funny story. I was um, jogging. I like to run. And in South Florida, they have these huge banana spiders. I mean, they're, I don't know if you've ever seen these things. They're like maybe their body is about two or three inches long. And then with their legs, they spread out. And they can be even as big as a hand. And they make these incredibly big webs that are spanned across the tree lines and across paths sometimes. So I'm running one morning, and I'm just jogging, having a good time. And all of a sudden, I run smack dab into one of these webs. What's my fear? Am I afraid afraid of the web? No, I'm afraid that there's something in the web and that there will be a spider right on my face if I, if I do. So I'm doing one of these things while I'm running. You know, trying to swipe off to make sure there's nothing on my head. The cars driving by must have thought I was ridiculous. Like, what is that guy doing over there? He's running and swiping the air. And... But this was, why? Have you ever been bitten by a spider? 
I don't know that I've ever been bitten by a spider. But I've heard that people have. I don't know who they are because every time I ask this question, no one says, yes, I have. I actually do have one friend who was bitten by a brown recluse, and I thought he was going to die. But no, they're not as dangerous as the world would have you believe. It was a really, really bad bite, and they had to get it treated, and it was, you know, bad. It was bad. I'm not kidding. It was bad. But we are so afraid of spiders, and all we need to do is that, and they're gone. They're dead. Who's the giant? Who's the giant? We're the giants. And yet there's this little bug and we just go crazy. Or how about those who are afraid of mice? Any mice fears in here? Okay, no mice fears. Some? Or how about going in the water? You're swimming. Oh, I guess you can't do that in Colorado. Who's afraid of running into a bison? Or I don't know. What are you afraid of? A rattlesnake. Shark. Well, you don't have sharks here. I mean, what are you going to do with shark in Colorado? Mountain lions. Do you know anyone who's been attacked by a mountain lion? It doesn't happen that often. But that one time, that mountain lion mauled a jogger. And now every time you go jogging, you're, you're doing this kind of thing behind you. This is what I want us to understand. The people of Egypt, Hebrews living in Egypt as slaves, were beaten. And their, their cycle of life was one of pain, abuse, power that would oppress them. And so when they got to Israel, it was a natural When they came into an encounter where God was really going to move, they couldn't believe it. And the whole people stayed up all night weeping out of fear. I think that we have been, in our lives, knocked around a few times. We've had some harsh tragedies in our life. Maybe you've been in an abusive relationship, physically, emotionally, otherwise. Maybe you have had an abusive boss with their authority. Maybe you have lost loved ones. Maybe you have been sick yourself with something that was very life-threatening and scary. And we get to the moment where God wants us to encounter his grace or to be the one that ministers that power and love to somebody else. And you know what we do? Uh Uh-uh, I've experienced too much pain. I've experienced too much hurt. And we back away from that one moment that God wanted to reveal himself. And so what do we need to do? We need to walk around in the wilderness for a while and learn what hope really is. So I'll close with this, just a little bit about hope. See, we need to move from fear to hope. Fear looks to the future with anxiety and worry about what could happen. Always bad. So I'm going to, you know, go driving and someone's going to be drunk and they're going to hit me head on. And, you know, so you live in this fear of what could happen. You look to the future and you're filled with woe, filled with anxiety. Just being honest, do we have people who live about in fear for some things? I do. I think it's okay to be honest with the Lord that we have had experiences that have caused, caused us pain, and so we react to things. And we might think that we're being wise, you know, rationalizing things, but that could happen. It really could. You could get bitten by that snake when you go jogging. You could get attacked by a mountain lion. Yes, 
But yet, what is the real danger? It's not that there's none, but we overwhelmingly focus on it. Whereas hope looks ahead with anticipation for good and enables you to even endure suffering. See, this is the thing is your life is not called to be easy. But I love this quote, and I can't remember where I heard it. Relationships are hard, but so are breakups. Choose your heart. Marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. Choose your heart. Serving the Lord is hard. Living your life without God is hard. Choose your heart. You see where I'm going? Life is hard, but we can live it with God and with that hope of expectation that he will make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, or we can live a hard life apart from him. And for me, every moment where I've been faced since that time when Samuel passed away, I have chosen to walk with the Lord eventually. I have to sometimes struggle. I have to sometimes walk up to the point of the cliff before I make the decision, but it's a heart choice that we will choose to put our faith and our trust in him. But I also want to just take one minute to, to, to illuminate the difference between faith and hope, because I think we get those confused. Now, Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So we know that faith and hope are being distinguished at some level. Faith is not equal to hope, and hope is not equal to faith. But faith is a tangible thing. It's something that we can almost hold on to we, we, mentally. It's like we, we, we grasp faith. Here's the next phrase in that. It's the evidence of things not seen. So in your life, you have many times when the evidence of God moving has been weaved all throughout. How you came to a knowledge of him, how you prayed for that one person and he healed them, how that miraculous relationship got restored. There are moments in your life where you can see faithfulness of God, faithfulness of God, faithfulness of God. And it's because of that evidence that we can put our trust in him. See, it's what God was doing for the Hebrew people in the desert for 40 years that gave them the foundation to trust and have faith in the Lord and not faith in fear. So you know you can have faith in fear because what is fear? It's looking back at all the bad things that you've experienced or all the bad things that you've been told and then looking ahead and expecting those things are going to happen to you no matter what the circumstance is, even if God wants to break the pattern. Whereas hope looks ahead with anticipation and says, God is good. Yes, it's hard. You know, the disciples all died. They were willing to give up their life for the gospel and the message that Jesus is the one true God who will take away the sins of the world and that his death and resurrection power can be ours if we'll accept it. And they are all willing to die for that. It was hard, but yet they had great joy because they knew the hope wasn't in this world and how they felt. Their hope was in the eternal God. 
So here's the end of the story is Joshua, book of Joshua. Think of how things have turned. Rahab is talking to the spies and she's telling the spies, very interesting, I know that God has given you the land. The, the very people living in the land saw a change in the Hebrews. I know that God has given you the land. Dread has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land are melting in fear because of you. Think about that flip. The ten spies go in, and they're all coming back with a report of being afraid. Slavery culture. But now, after 40 years of victories, God miraculously providing for the people, them winning battles against kings, they come to the land, two spies this time, to look at it, and the, and the narrative has changed. The Hebrew people, we've watched them for a generation, and God has been their God. He's been faithful to them. He's had victories for them. He's provided for them. We thought that they were going to be wiped out 40 years ago when we beat them back. And so they had new hope. Their hope was at the end, echoed in Joshua 2, 23 and 24, the two men returned, came down from the hill country, crossed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they reported to Tim all that had happened to them. And he said, surely Adonai has given all of the land into our hands. Indeed, all of the inhabitants of the land have melted in fear. The giants, all the ites, even the termites, they were all melting in fear because they had heard about the one true God. And the faith of the people rose. And you know what they were called to do? Walk around cities, do things that didn't make a lot of sense in the natural. And they still risked their lives. They had battles that they had to fight, actual swords in their hands. But the Lord was faithful to fulfill his promise. And the Lord will be faithful to you to fulfill whatever promise he has given you, but we need to get over fear and find hope. Because we look at the faithfulness of God and we say, yes, you were faithful then, you'll be faithful today, and you'll be faithful for my future. He will give you every tool, every resource, every relationship that you need to fulfill his purpose for you. It doesn't matter your age, children, you have a purpose in the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about, yes, someday when I'm 20, then I'll start to walk it out. I remember the first time I heard the voice of the Lord, I was five or six years old. If you haven't heard it, if you haven't heard that still small voice, pray for it, seek it, he will give it to you. There's no junior Holy Spirit. Walk out in faith for the things that God has called you to do. Don't look around you and worry about what other people are saying. I started giving prophetic words in elementary school, sixth, seventh grade is when I would get up in front of a whole student body and I said, I feel the Lord is telling us this and that. You can do the same. I'm not saying you have to be a prophet, but I'm just saying the Lord will speak to you. The Lord will guide you. And for us who are older, don't lose your fire. Don't let the knocks of the pains of life cause you to miss the divine opportunities that are right in front of us where God wants to break through. Don't cower in fear because you say, oh, I've seen that before and it didn't work. Nope. Step out in faith and have hope that God will work it together for good. Let's stand. 
Hallelujah. Thank you for giving a little extra time today. I appreciate that. I felt it was important. <laughs> All right. Abba Father, I thank you so much for this community, the light of life. And I just pray, Father, that your light would shine into those dark places of our life to give us hope where there is no hope, a way where there is no way. And even though life is hard, that we would be able to choose the path that leads with you, that we would walk with you, that you would guide us, that you would go before us, that you would go behind us, that you would go around us like the song that we've been singing. It's just so wonderful. Father, bless this community. Give us hope. Give us joy and encouragement today in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you, Ben. And I know it's, we went a little over, but you guys came all the way from Knoxville. You can, you can hang on. Yeah. Um, we want to do one more thing, and um, it won't take long. But I want to invite um, our leadership team and the wives to come forward. I want to invite Kent and Russ and Siri, Bill and um, David and Laura. And um, well, Am I missing anybody else? <sighs> you know, um, come on up here, guys. We have um, our eldership team of myself and Kent and David and Russ back there in our Shamashim, we have Bill and um, and Joyce and and Jason is is not here today, and um, they've been installed and they've been operating in in functioning in that role. Like we're we're not into titles or anything like that, but um, I want Ben as the president of Tikkun America to just pray over them and lay hands on them. You guys are all spread out. Do you like each other? I mean, I want you guys to pretend like you like each other. No, they do. And I want to make sure I'm not missing any. Um, if, if Ben, if you would just bless them and anoint them, and, um, and then we'll close the service. But uh, I think this is just special, so... Father God, I thank you That's okay. for the mantle of this holy responsibility of taking the office of leadership, of taking the office of responsibility for the flock. And we know that it's not something done lightly, Father. We know that it's one that comes with its own holy fear, not an unholy, anxious fear, but one that walks before you with that good type of awe and trembling. And Father, right now, we just, we just proclaim your favor upon them for wisdom and discernment beyond what they've even experienced in life to be able to see in the Spirit and call out those things that you are saying and to be vocal with love. Father, I thank you that the eldership of the city, the eldership of a community is the highest level of government locally. And that as they take this role, it's not one to overlord or to abuse, but it's one to serve and it's one to 
bless. And so, Father, right now we just pray blessing on these couples, blessing on these new elders, Father. Your favor upon each of them, Lord. We just thank you, Father, for the new level of the Spirit moving through them so that they can lead in such a way that they say, come follow me as I follow Messiah. May you go before them, Lord God. Order their steps in Yeshua's name. And we just confirm from the apostolic team of Tikkun America too that they are established in this office rightly and according to scripture with the laying on of hands and are serving in this office as long as they serve with integrity and faithfulness. We just thank you for them in Yeshua's name. Amen. Yeah, Tom wasn't up here. Tom is helping um, Jan and, and, and uh, Sarah in to, to their um, to their ride home but um, if we would all just remain standing and I just want to there he is we bless Tom in the name of Yeshua amen <laughs> um, I want to just speak a blessing over you as the congregation and um, yeah the Lord spoke to Moses to speak to Aaron and the priests that when the children of Israel would gather that you're to bless them in the to bless them in this way. Yevarechucha Adonai Vishmarecha Yair Adonai Panav Elecha Vichunecha Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha Vyasem lecha shalom. Yisa Adonai panavelecha. Vyasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his peace, his presence, his mercies. His, his promises, he says yes, yes and amen to them in your lives. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen, amen. I bless you and thank you for being patient with us, but this was good. This is really good. And uh, hang out, get to know each other. We're going to, the leadership is going to meet with Ben for a while. And, um, but uh, this has been good. So Shavua Tov, have a great week. And um, if you need prayer, we're here to pray with you too. Amen. God bless you.